teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Everybody, uh, what you may or may not know is, is that I am a Houstonian uh, in soul, heart, spirit, mind, and body. So I am uh, a Houstonian in exile living in Dallas, which is quite a challenge. And so to be able to come to Houston and spend a week in Houston is really a great privilege. And uh, uh, I've known about First Baptist since I was a child when First Baptist was located in downtown Houston. And then it made the big move out here. But this is actually my first time inside the building. So this is, so this is, uh, this is special to be able to be here. I have been, uh, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I've been to Second Baptist many times. Uh, and, and so, uh, so, you know, so obviously I've moved up from number two to number one. So we've gone from Avis to Hertz. All right. So, uh, um, and if there are any of you from Second Baptist who are in here have snuck in, uh, I didn't say that. So anyway, um, it is a real pleasure to be here. I thought about the topic of what I was going to address, a group called Warrior's Heart. And I thought, well, this is Houston. Houston for a long time was known as the heart transplant center of the world. And so I'm going to do a heart transplant today. And my goal is to turn your Warrior's Heart into ambassadors' hearts, and I'm going to talk about why. I'm going to have us think about how we talk about and engage our culture. I'm going to talk about the culture war, and I think what I'm going to try and do is go through my material and then allow a little time for interaction directly with me before you all have your time at your table. So, I, so the plan is a little bit different than what normally happens, but hopefully, uh, it'll work out. You have been asked because of the fine First Baptist staff, um, you've been provided with an outline of what I'm going to do, which is a, a teacher's, it's, it's a nightmare for a teacher to give their whole outline because guys can sit there and say, okay, that's going to be about three minutes and that's going to be about five minutes. So, uh, but we've given you the whole outline, so hopefully you can listen and not write uh, furiously. And I'm going to take you through a, quickly a whole series of passages because my point today is to show you how deeply embedded in Scripture the themes that I'm going to be talking about actually are. So if you uh, have your sheet, and you know what? I need one of those, So let me, because I want to follow it the way I gave it to you all. Um, so if you have your sheet, we open up at the start with the Christian's place and culture. And I want to start with uh, Philippians 3.20. And we'll be moving pretty quickly from passage to passage. I'm not going to stop and talk about a lot of these passages in detail. I'm just going to introduce the point that they're making and then move on. And this, but this first passage is important. It sets the tone for everything. And that is that our core citizenship is that we are citizens of heaven. If you think what it means to be a citizen of heaven, that is a transnational group that spans across nations and is diverse of every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And our loyalty starts there, and that's what produces the imagery that I'm going to be working with uh, all morning. The second passage, it says 1 Corinthians 5.20, but I'm just checking to see if you're awake. 
That's 2 Corinthians 5.20, and that's the passage on ambassadors. I'm going to take a close look at that passage in a little bit. A third key passage is 1 Peter 1, verse 1, where we are referred to as experiencing a life in exile. We are greeted as those of the diaspora, those whom God has literally spread across the globe to represent him in a variety of places because of this citizenship, this heavenly citizenship that we have. And then the last passage that I do want to spend a touch of time on is in Jeremiah uh, chapter 29 and verse 7. So if you have your Bibles or if you have what I call, it's not a smartphone, it's a spiritual phone if it has a Bible in it. Anyway, um, if you have your spiritual phones, uh, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, and I want to take a quick look at this passage. This is a famous passage in which God, uh, after sending the nation of Israel into exile, gives them advice about how to live in Babylon. Now, Babylon wasn't exactly a civilization formed, uh, you know, out of biblical principles. And, And so it's kind of, you know, Babylon is the equivalent in the latter part of the Old Testament to places like Sodom and Gomorrah and places like that, places with a fine, uh, well-established reputation. It's just that it's not a positive reputation. It's a uh, more negative one. And so this is what the Lord says to those of Israel who have ended up in Babylon. Verse 4 of chapter 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, this is the key verse. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare and the calling that the Aspera Jews were given in Babylon was to contribute to the well-being of the life of the city, to serve the city, to engage in the city, and to do so in a positive way. So that's part of what we're going to be talking about this morning. And what I want to do is I want to walk you through the idea of why we're here, and I want to connect two things that we don't connect enough. And that is the great commission, the call to go into the world and make disciples, teaching them obey all that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what I would call the creation commission, the commission that we received all the way back in Genesis 1. And I want to put the gospel in that context because one of the premises that I have that I want to discuss today and lay out on the table is is that when we talk about the gospel, we tend to start in the wrong place. We tend to start in Genesis 3, and the start of the gospel story is really in Genesis 1. It is the idea that we are made in the image of God, not just we are made in the image of God, every single soul that walks the earth is made in the image of God, is designed to have a relationship with God, And in that design is a calling that we, whoever we engage, whoever we're engaged with, it's a place where we can start. 
You know, I think of the Sistine Chapel where uh, the finger of God and the finger of Adam touch. And that's a Genesis 1 picture. We see God involved with His creation. He makes us in the image of God. I like to say that if you want to know what makes humans different, then you realize that there's no such thing as a First Baptist Church of porpoises. Okay? Or a First Presbyterian Church of alligators. That would be an interesting congregation. Okay? Or a First Methodist Church of butterflies. That there are elements in the creation that don't, aren't as reflective as human beings are because we're made in the image of God and there is an instinct in all human beings that there is something more to life than being here and then disappearing one day. And that is a great starting point for any conversation that you're going to have with anybody. If you go to Acts 17, where Paul engages with people on Mars Hill, they've never cracked a Bible in their life. They don't know Genesis from Malachi. They don't know Matthew from Revelation. They don't, they don't know, this is a technical theological term, schmatz about the Bible. But they are able to engage with what, what's going on. It's kind of this question. If you met someone who'd never opened a Bible in their life, where would you start with the story of the Bible? And where Paul starts is with the idea there is a creator, a single creator out there, and we are creatures made to be in relationship and in an accountability uh, to him. That's the starting point. That's Genesis 1. The call is not only to reflect being made in the image of God, but to manage the creation, pictured as a garden, manage the creation well where God has placed us. That's the calling of every single human being. And that's the starting point, of course, for the gospel. Why that makes a difference, hopefully I will show you as we move along. So what I want to do is I want to take you through a series of passages and I want to properly define the cultural war we are in. I also want to define the cultural war we are not in, but that the church has been waging, I think, in a misdirected way. And then how to think about all that. So this is called the war. This Bible study is called the warrior's heart. That's a good name. So let's think about that a little bit. So, you know, put on your armor and march with me to Ephesians chapter 6. This is a very famous text. This is where, you know, put on the armor of God text. This is where the picture of the warrior comes from. So we're right in the midst of, of the battle that we ought to be in. But look at what chapter 6 and verse 12 says. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the powers and the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. That distinction is huge. Our battle is a spiritual battle against spiritual forces, and those forces have people in their hands. The enemy is not the people that we encounter on the earth. The enemy are the spiritual forces that blind the people that we encounter on the earth. That is a significant distinction. And the reason it's significant is because if we're in a war, it's a different kind of war than the way we think about war. If we're in a war and we're thinking, of, and we're thinking about people as being opponents, then 
the goal is not what a normal goal in a war is, because in a normal war, the goal is to defeat the enemy. The goal is to gain spoils from the enemy. But we're more like a delta force that's sent in to snatch people out of the hands of the enemy. That's the picture I want you to be thinking about at one level. So our battle is not against flesh and blood, and it means that our goal is not to defeat or crush the enemy. It is to win the enemy, if we're thinking about people. In fact, if you think about what our battle and our assignment is, this assignment, should you choose to accept it, you know, and then the tape's going to self-destruct in five seconds. Okay, the actual assignment is, is to go in and perform this rescue operation. When we make people the enemy, the risk is we actually undercut the mission we've been given. Because the goal of the exercise is to invite people who are not a part of sacred space, if I can say it that way, out of the public square into the sacred space because our commitment is that what the gospel offers is a capability and a power and a way of living that... If you're outside the sacred space, you don't have the capability of living. In other words, the very people that we're charged to challenge are also the very people we're challenged to invite into the space of participation in the gospel. It's a different kind of war. It's a different kind of battle. And I actually think that there is a better way to think about this than to think about being just in a war. And that additional idea is the idea of being an ambassador. And so I want to develop that. Let me start off with one passage that I'm just going to compare real quickly. A core tension that we have then is this, that we have God's standard of righteousness that we're called to represent in a fallen world while inviting the very people that we are challenging to consider coming into the faith. If we simply shake our finger at people, okay, we lose the opportunity for invitation if we're not careful. So the issue of tone becomes important. And that's why the starting point is important. Because in engaging people in this culture, the starting point that you can have is not so much that you're a sinner, although you're going to have to go there eventually. The starting point that you want to have is you've been designed to have a relationship with the living God. And the reason your relationships may be dysfunctional in the world is because you're not living out that design. And you'll see that there's sin in that mix as well as um, the idea of what's coming out of Genesis 1. Another way to say this is to say that as we engage, tone matters. And so now what I want to do is take you through a series of texts that show this. And the first text, uh, I wish I had more time to develop this, is a contrast between the way Paul talks about the culture in the end of Romans 1. These are passages I'm sure you're all familiar with. The way Paul talks about culture at the end of Romans 1, when he's going through the list of God having given people over because they suppress the truth in righteousness. By the way, what is the truth that they suppress? The truth that they suppress is they know there's a creator out there to whom they're supposed to have a relationship. And they push that down. And then, of course, the passage has a section in which it discusses issues that have become very prominent in our day related to same-sex behavior. And then there's a huge list of vices 
that exists in the culture. And Paul closes that passage very directly, very straightforwardly saying, and not only do people practice these things, but they encourage people to practice them. And he's setting up his argument in Romans, in the book of Romans as a whole, that the Gentile culture has a need for the gospel because people do, listen to this carefully, these things, not just one sin, but anything in the list. Then in chapter 2, he goes on and says, and Jews, even though they have the law, they also fail. So by the time we get to chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have the same need. We all fail in our natural selves to live out the way we were designed to live in the image of God. That's the point that's being made in the early chapter of Romans. And he says that very directly, uh, almost in your face. And yet, that same Paul, when he goes to Mars Hill in Acts 17 and addresses that culture, and even as he walks around and the text says, as he looked at their idols, he was provoked in his spirit, which means he wasn't happy. He didn't like what he was seeing. He opens his message to that audience by saying, I can see you are religious in every way. Now, I'm a child of the 60s, and when I read that passage the first time, thinking through, this is the Paul who wrote Romans 1, I went, Paul, what are you smoking? (laughs) But there actually was a very important lesson in that move. In fact, that opening is so radical that liberal scholars will say about the speech in Acts 17, that can't be the same person who wrote Romans 1. Luke is pulling one on us. And when you do that, you miss the lesson. Because the lesson is the same Paul who could challenge culture very, very directly in an in-house communication to the church. When he goes out in the culture and engages it, he engages them with respect even as he begins to move to challenge them. And that's the key idea this morning. The tone with which we engage the culture is as important as the message that we bring to that culture. And if I were giving the church a grade on how we address the culture with our tone, you don't want me to go there, generally speaking. So let's take a look at a series of passages. I want to start off in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 16. And there is a very interesting juxtaposition of verses. In 1 Peter 3, 13, it says, For who is going to harm you? If you're devoted to what is good, seems like a perfect natural question. If I do good, I shouldn't expect trouble. Right? I mean, all things being equal. But we live in a fallen and flawed world. So things don't work that way. Look at the next verse. But in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. That's exactly what that just said. In fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. Two surprising things here. You suffer for doing what's right, and you're supposed to be blessed if you're persecuted. You're not supposed to seek to get out of the persecution. You're not supposed to utter a prayer that says, nuke the enemy. Okay? You're supposed to press ahead. By the way, there's a prayer exactly like this in Acts 4. When Peter and John are in the midst of being arrested for the first time and persecution is showing up on the scene and the church gets together to pray and they don't pray to nuke the enemy and they don't pray to have the persecution removed, 
they pray for faithfulness and boldness that they may share, share the word in the midst of that environment. And so this text says, but in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not be terrified of them or be shaken. The church is not supposed to respond to the pressure of being in a fallen world by reacting out of fear and a lack of faith, which is the way I think we often react. And so we get angry and frustrated rather than thinking about how we're representing the Lord. Verse 15, very famous verse, often memorized, often cited out of context, and there's more to it than what we normally see. But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about, and here's the good news creeping through, the hope you possess. Positive message. We hold a message of hope. Verse 16, almost never memorized with verse 15, but it ought to be. Yet do it with courtesy and respect. Your translation may have a different combination of words, but the general idea is you do it with respect, you do it with reverence, you do it with, with wisdom, keeping a good conscience so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if God wills it, than for doing evil. Don't pay the world back in kind. passage goes on to use Jesus in his crucifixion, as the ultimate example of this. So the introduction is the idea of engaging in our defense, in taking our stand, in representing the Lord, but doing it with a courtesy and a respect. Next passage. I told you we're just going to run through text. Colossians 4, 4 to 4-6. This is a text where Paul is asking for prayer that he might be able to share the gospel with those who have arrested him. He's in jail. He's in prison. This is one of the prison epistles. I like to say, if Paul needs prayer to share the gospel, then surely we do. And so, pray that I may make it known as I should, Colossians 4, 4, verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunities. Let your speech always, 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 always be gracious. That was emphatic. Season with salt so that you may know how you should answer everyone. Another text, Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10 says this, So then, whatever we, whenever we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Serve the city, even the city of Babylon. Let us do good to all people, and especially to those who belong to to the family of the faith. Next text, 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26. Part of my point here is to say, the scripture says this again and again and again and again. 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26. But keep away from your youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faithfulness, love, and peace in company with others who call on the Lord from a pure heart But reject foolish and ignorant controversies because you know they breed infighting. And the Lord's slave must not engage in heated disputes, but be kind toward all, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance and then knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap 
where they are held captive to do his will. That passage does everything we're talking about all at once. We're to engage with a tone that reflects gentleness. We are engaged in the way in a rescue mission. We are rescuing people from the devil's trap. The battle is with the devil, and the goal is to win people that we tend to see as opponents. Because it's a delta operation, and we are, to switch the metaphor, ambassadors. I could mention Jesus' own example in doing this in various ways. I could talk about his engagement with the Samaritan woman and the cultural boundaries that he crossed in making that effort at association and engaging her. I could talk about his handling of Zacchaeus, which wasn't a very popular thing when he said, I have to stay in Zacchaeus' house because of the relationships that it represented in a way a tax collector was seen. We tend to view taxes similarly today. Or the woman caught in adultery, how she is handled by Jesus, in which she is let go, but the exhortation is given to go and sin no more since you've experienced the goodness and grace of God. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is the passage I want to zero in on. Verses 17 to 21, verse 20 is the key verse. And here it is. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away, but look, what is new has come. And all these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Of all the words that Paul could pick to say what our message what our vibes are supposed to be about, what our um, radio signals should be when we're broadcasting. The one word he uses to summarize the ministry and message is the word reconciliation. It's putting those two fingers back in touch with one another. That's what we're supposed to be about, and that's where our story is supposed to be uh, driving to. All these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. And he has given us the message of reconciliation. That's what people are supposed to be hearing. They aren't supposed to be hearing Jimmy Cagney. You know, Jimmy Cagney used to say in those old movies, some of you guys are young, you don't know who Jimmy Cagney is. Jimmy Cagney, Hollywood actor, way, way back, short, little, tough guy, okay? One of the most famous lines, one of them, you, dirty rat, you're the one who killed my brother, okay? Sometimes I listen to the church and I hear Jimmy Cagney, you, dirty rat, you are a sinner. And I go, where's the good news in that? Where is it? In there. For you modern guys, okay, we could think about the gospel this way. Okay, don't think about Jimmy Cagney. Think about Neo in The Matrix, Okay, and what's Neo doing? He's dodging bullets. And we present the gospel as if it's about avoiding something. If you died today, would you know for sure you're going to heaven? Okay, now this is a good question to ask Texans because every summer we go through hell. And the reason there are so many Christians in Texas is it's so hot every summer. We go, we know what that's like. We don't want to go there. Okay, all right. But seriously... The point here is, is that the gospel is not about avoiding something. The gospel is about gaining something. 
about reconnecting to something, about reconnecting to someone. It's about those two fingers coming together. And that's what we're sharing. And that is a message of hope. Be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. That's a message of reconciliation where we're taking things that have been separated and putting them back in conjunction with one another. Verse 20, the key verse. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Here comes the heart transplant. We're not just warriors' hearts. We are ambassadors' hearts. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making His plea through us. Notice the tone. His plea through us. We plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. The word for plea here is the very word that's used when someone prays and beseeches God for something. We are pleading with you. We are urging you. We are begging you. Be reconciled to Christ. Notice the tone of that. As ambassadors. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. God has designed the cross to take you somewhere and that somewhere is back to God. Not just to forgive your sins. Not just to wash a slate clean. What is forgiveness of sins for? Forgiveness of sins is in order to take you back into relationship with the living God. Take you back to the place where you were designed to live from the very beginning. To put those fingers back in touch with one another. Two more ideas and then I'm done. We can talk. The ambassador. Let's think about this image for a second. The ambassador represents his homeland. Remember where we started? We're citizens of heaven. The ambassador represents his homeland in a foreign land. The ambassador also knows the country he's called to serve in. An ambassador, when he goes to a country, doesn't simply plop himself down in the embassy and say, I'm here representing my country in the embassy, and if you want to know the, about the country that I represent, come see me at the embassy. The door is open. Now, what does an ambassador do? He gets out and he engages with the country that he's a part of. He actually has the responsibility of reporting what's going on in the country where he is back to the homeland that he represents and vice versa. And so he is engaged. He's, he's out there. He knows the country that he's operating in. And the third thing that an ambassador does is he seeks to bring the two things together. He seeks to bring his land and the land that he represents together so that they function well together. That's the role of an ambassador. If we think about the concept of reconciliation a little bit, and we think about the fact this is a summary term for what the gospel is about, Paul has two summary terms for what the gospel is all about. One of them is reconciliation. The other is the word power. But it's not power in the sense that the world uses it where we are coercing people to do certain things. It's power in terms of the idea of capability. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and the Greek. And this is how the power works. It's about a capability. Because in the early chapters of, Je of Romans, Paul says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. I'm going to do something that's going to surprise you. I'm going to lay down on the job. Here's the beginning of Romans. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Do, 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 do
Can't hit that note. Now, here's the question. How much power does a dead person have? None. Zero. Nada. Nix. That's Romans 1, 2, and 3. You get justified at the end of Romans 3 and the beginning of Romans 4, and you are raised to new life. And all of a sudden, you have the power and the capability because of the gift of the Spirit to walk in fellowship with God. That's Romans 6 through 8. That's the story of the book of Romans in a nutshell. And so there are two words that summarize the gospel. One is reconciliation and the other is power. You've now been given the capability to get back in touch with God so that you can walk with Him. That is the message of reconciliation that we take to the world. And the point that I'm trying to make here is is that without that power and capability, legislation doesn't mean schmatz. If you want to see what legislation looks like without hearts, read your Old Testament. So we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. We've got to keep the Great Commission in contact with the Creation Commission and the Creation Mandate. We need to not make the mistake that the cultural mandate often talked about and the church often makes, which is the calling of the churches to change the world. We've forgotten an important element in that equation. It's not two dots, it's a triangle. The triangle is this. The place where God is doing His work in sacred space and in sacred places is in the hearts of people who are part of His church community that are to be the audiovisual of what life and community and divine design is supposed to be about. And we're to showcase what God is doing by how we act and function and live as a church and in our communities. So if we talk to the world about family and our marriages are a little different than what goes on in the world, what kind of a message are we sending? What happens in the church is where God is most active and where we should be able to see most actively the legislation of God at work. And we've forgotten that role for the church in the midst of trying to engage in a cultural mandate. And the only way that change happens is when people are invited out of public space into sacred space, which means the people that you disagree with and the people who you challenge in the midst of your cultural engagement are the very people you're also trying to invite back into the space that will give them the capability that they need in order to be the people they were designed to be. We are not primarily warriors. We are primarily ambassadors. That's the point. Okay. Now, the good thing about this when you come to a a Bible study called Warrior's Hearts and you're a guest is you're here and you're gone. So I've done my duty. I've shared my point. And what I want to do now is take a little bit of time for a little bit of public interaction before you have your conversations at, 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 at your table. So the floor is open for reaction and responses, and I'm experiencing a little bit of the transfiguration here with these lights. So um, put a hand up or something so I can see if you want to chat or engage for a minute. I know this is not what you normally do, but I ask for permission to do this. Oh, look at that. They turned down, turned down the lights. The party's not over, okay? All right, yes. 
Very aware of it. Yep. That's a great question, and it's a good example. And uh, let me let me start by giving you another little uh, thing to remember, and it's this. When the church engages the culture, the way the church tends to engage the culture is to say, this is true because it's in the Bible. But in our cultural engagement, what we need to do is we need to say, it's in the Bible because it's true. There's something authentic about the way God describes the way life should be ordered and operated that you want people to think about. So you engage on the question of how healthy is it really to try and and say that gender doesn't matter? How healthy is that for people? What does that teach us about the way in which People seem to be designed as male and female. You know, one of the, I'm, uh, this will show you how you can be direct and issue a challenge at the same time because part of issuing a challenge is saying something that should give people pause. Here's an example of how to give people pause on this issue of same-sex marriage, and it's this. How is a child to learn... How is a child to learn how to relate to different genders if their families are made up of the same gender? Okay? Or let me put it even more politically correct terms. How is it not discriminatory to build a family where only one gender counts? Okay? Now, see what I'm doing? Okay? I'm taking the issue that's related to what's, and I'm, and I'm, The sole goal is to give pause. When Paul was at Mars Hill engaging his culture on idols, his goal was simply to give them pause about the direction their spirituality was going. Remember, he opened that speech by saying, I can see you're spiritual in every respect. And then he turned around and said, and I want to talk about that inscription that says to the unknown God. And then he began to say, the unknown God is a single figure. The unknown God is not worshipped by things made of silver and gold and wood. And he began to give them pause about why they were doing what they were doing. And so my point would be that what you do in the public square is you engage in the debate. You engage in the conversation. But you say, what is unhealthy, societally speaking, about washing out gender? And you engage. You do it respectfully. You say, the reason I'm mentioning this is not because I have an inordinate desire to curb your freedom. The reason I'm mentioning this is because I do not think it is good for society and I do not think it's good for our children. Okay? So you're taking your stand on the one hand, but you're doing it with respect on the other in terms of the substance of of the topic that you're engaged in. Now, you will be accused of being a... I'll probably be accused for being a hater, for having hate language and all that kind of stuff. Then you go back to First Peter. If you're accused for doing that which is right, you're blessed. You've been faithful. The other thing that you seek to do is, the other thing that we've got to learn how to do is learn how to lose well. 
We are whiners. Because we are guilty of having a sense of entitlement that we actually challenge our culture with when we challenge them. So we've got to lose well if we lose. Which means we continue to live faithfully by our standards and the way that we live. We intend continue to invite people into the way of life that we represent. We continue to say things like them, yes, there is freedom in our culture and there's freedom of choice and there's liberty, but there are some choices I make that can be self-destructive, that are damaging. That's what I want to talk about. That's how you engage. It's direct, it's frank, it's gentle, and it's respectful, but at the same time it engages with an authenticity about what life is Because when it reads the Bible, it says that thing is true not because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true about life. That's actually a harder way to argue because then you've got to dig deep to figure out why does God design the world this way and what is he getting at. And with regard to gender, he's getting at our need to be able to negotiate with people who are different than we are. That's part of what gender is about. Great question. Okay. Any other observations, questions, comments before we turn over the table? I'm going to take one or two more questions. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's right. Yep. Good news message is, let me, let me, there's a huge undercurrent to your question that, that I need to get at. We have tended to present the gospel as if it's about making a decision. The gospel starts as a decision, but it's not just about a decision. It's about a relationship. Okay, that tells you where I'm going. Okay, the gospel is about reconnecting in a healthy relationship with the living God because he, by his goodness and grace, has taken care of that which stands between us. Okay? And I think I did that in about seven seconds. Okay? It's reestablishing a relationship with the living God because he has taken care of that which stands between us. That's what the cross is about. And it's about a relationship. It's not just about a decision. Let me give you an analogy. When you stood before the preacher when you got married, now some of you may be single, so this could be eschatological for you, okay? But, but when you stood before the preacher and the pastor said to me, Daryl, do you take Sally to be your lawfully wedded wife, you know, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do you part, think about what you're doing, Okay? You're making a moment's declaration, but that moment's declaration is a vista out into the future. And so you answer that question, I do. That's the moment of decision. But sometimes we present the gospel as if it's just about a decision and it's not about the relationship. And when we do that, it's like standing at the altar and saying, I do. And then as you turn around and you walk out of the service with your bride on your arm, you're going, no, I don't. That whole thing is connected. 
When I say I am trusting God for my spiritual welfare, which is what you do in that decision, God has forgiven my sins. He has washed it away. I realize that is wrong. I realize I need what he's provided. That is an open-ended declaration of faith in God. In fact, at the core of faith is humility. The core of faith is humility because you're saying, I am trusting God to do something I know I can't do for myself. And you've opened it up into a relationship. So everything, this, this is part of what I call translating our theology into language people get because we speak a foreign language to people. Our theological language is a foreign language. Propitiation is not a word I use on a regular basis in everyday speech. Okay, I haven't propitiated in public in a long time. So how do we translate what we're talking about in language that people can get? And the language that I think people can get is the gospel is about reconnecting you to the living God in a relationship he designed you to have. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that if I could let you know about how that works? That's what I'm doing in the short period of time that I've got. Mm-hmm. Yes. Great, great. Oh, man, it's loaded. I, I actually have a message that I do. Um, I'll be doing it in, in Dallas this weekend at, uh, at a church that has deep roots at the Dallas Seminary. Uh, and I like to introduce that message by saying we are going back to the future. That we have lived in an exceptional time in which the Judeo-Christian base has been the base of our culture and society for a long time, and we're in the process of leaving that, and we're nervous. Some of us want to go back. We may not be able to go back. We may be taken to a place on purpose that has us back where the early church was. And the advice and the examples are the texts I just gave you, sprinkled with some examples that I alluded to on the way, Mars Hill, the prayer in Acts 4. Let me give you one more. In Acts 19, the community at Ephesus. When the gospel came to Ephesus, the movement of the church wasn't to go to the Ephesian city council and say, Dear city council, we need you to change the laws on magic and magic books. And if you'll change the law on magic and magic books, we'll be better off. What happened? Hearts were changed, and what did the people do? They got rid of those books. That's the right order. Legislation will only work if hearts are changed. That's why prohibition failed. Because we had the law, but nothing changed. So we've got to put things in the right priority. That's the point I make. You still make your advocacy in the public square. You still make your case for what's healthy for a society. You... you, You engage in what democracy allows you to engage in. You make your case, but if you lose the vote, you lose wealth. And you continue to live by the standards that you have, and the church community continues to live by the standards that it has, and by being different than the world, this role and presence of sacred space becomes obvious in the midst of public space, and you invite people in. Okay, time for one more question. Yes. 
It's a great question. I have a, we have a website at the seminary called The Table, uh, and we did an entire chapter on what's called the theme of genocide in the Old Testament, talking about where that came from and why it happened. You've got to read the story in context. Part of the story and background of that story, I never got it either until I was at seminary reading through the Bible in sequence, starting with Genesis and working our way up to where the story in Samuel is told. And in the middle of the Pentateuch, tucked away in those best-selling books of Leviticus and Numbers, okay, you know, some of the most scintillating biblical stuff you will ever read, okay, this is how you slay the heifer to do the sacrifice, you know, that kind of stuff, all right? What also was described was the nature of the religion that was being practiced by the people that they were told to annihilate. And that included things like child sacrifice. That included things like what we would call um, uh, abuse of women, that kind of thing. It was a totally corrupt society. He wanted wiped off the face of the earth because the intention was if we remove that and we replace it with a pristine and pure Israelite faith, we won't get what that society gives us. They didn't do it. And what happened? They got what that society gives us. We're still operating with, and I'm having a pun here, with Damocles' sword sitting over our heads. There's coming a time when God will hold people accountable for the judgments they make, and we are all accountable to God ultimately, whether it's now or later. This was a unique period in the Old Testament. It didn't happen regularly. It's a very unique experience. It isn't a general principle that you general. Let's go. Our application is we're going to nuke everybody who disagrees with us. Okay, I think you can read through the rest of the Bible and see that's not how the Bible handles this. But it was a peculiar situation because of the depth of corruption of the society that was being taken out. It's not a completely satisfying explanation for some people who have, and, and appropriately so, very tender hearts. But the way God handles that now is that he gives people plenty of time to repent. He doesn't judge them immediately, thank God, okay? Because that would take care of probably most of us. And so, and so we see a different way of engagement. But if you go to that site, there's a 30-minute chapel with question and answers with students that discuss genocide in the Old Testament. The site's www.dts.edu slash the table. Okay, and that's, a, that's in the section called uh, Cultural Engagement Chapels. And we did it about a year and a half ago with two Old Testament scholars, and they talked about um, this particular scene and the explanation of it. Yes. I said I, last question, and I lied. I'll take one more. Go ahead. www.dts.edu slash the table. By the way, let me announce to you, because you'll be hearing about this, the seminary is going to be holding a special faith work event in April that the Hendricks Center is hosting. We're bringing several faith, work, and vocation people down here for an all-day event. I think it's, I think the date's April 2nd, but I'm not positive. Maybe April 22nd. may not have the date right. I'm actually going to be down here a couple of more times to talk about that event. It's an event that I think you all would be very, very interested in being a part of. What he just spoke is what Warrior's Heart is all about. And if you want to listen back to old talks, our spirit of this is about 
placing the proper context of what that war really is, and it's not against the people, and it's not against a society around us. It is about building the kingdom of God one man at a time through the grace and the mercy and the love of God, and you are the keys to that as you go to work, as you go back into your home, as you go to your neighborhood. If we don't engage in truth and love the people around us and love them well and engage them well, that is why we're here. It is, as we say often, it is the largest freedom-fighting mission that has ever been initiated. And we get the privilege, as he said, of being the special ops. We get the privilege of being those men who get to step out and help set people free with, with good news and grace and God's justice and his mercy. And so I hope you heard that spirit there loud and clear. It's, it's a well-articulated. Um, some other talks to go back. If you have our app, go back to the role of men in culture is a, is a good talk that's been given. A couple of other good talks I will email out to y'all. Uh, let me pray over us, and then y'all, y'all can hang out here longer if you want to, or you can be dismissed. Lord God, we come before you, and we are grateful. We are grateful for your love for us, and we are grateful, Father, that in the midst of that, it didn't end with us, and it's not about us. It is about your glory. It is about your name, and it's about the opportunity that you have allowed us to be a part of in this time, in this city, and in this world at this time. God, that we would be faithful to you. We would love well and lead well. Father, that we would be servant leaders and ambassadors. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. Would you bless Dr. Bach as he goes about the ministry that you've called him to? Would you draw more men and more women to uh, the teachings that have been presented even here? And even if you use this podcast in a small way to put that out, but, God, for each of us, may we align with the arc of your word and the story of your gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Garden Room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day. Set you free inside.